0: This is Melissa Stewart welcoming you to an episode of Beyond Brave podcast. Beyond Brave is a chance for us to learn from each other. It's also a time to be courageous by sharing ideas, especially those ideas that are initially less than perfect in the classroom. Lastly, it's a chance to be brave together by boldly embracing a culture of pedagogical inquiry. I would like to welcome Monica Gibson. Monica is the English Language Learner or ELL teacher for Indian Hill Schools. Many of you probably know Monica because she travels to each of our four buildings and completes many of the district-level reports on our behalf. She would be the teacher that you see traveling to all four buildings, rain or shine. If you don't know her yet, you probably will know her because our population of English Language Learners is changing significantly. And we should probably mention that if you don't know Monica as the EL teacher, you may know her as a mom to four awesome children who attend Indian Hill schools. Monica, can you start with a description of your certification and how you came to the decision to work with this particular population of students?
1: Yeah, it was actually an interesting turn of events. Um, when I was in college, I had an appointment to meet with my advisor to make sure I was all squared away for graduation. And my appointment was scheduled with her on September 11th, 2001. Oh. And so I arrived that morning and everybody knows where they were on yeah. September 11th. But I arrived that morning and it was obviously a powerful moment yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. in everybody's lives. But I remember talking to her as we were also dealing with what was going on. And she was telling me, you know, you really should consider adding this minor because I was a history teaching major. She said, I really think you should add this minor of TESOL and it's like the new thing. And she was telling me all about it. I'd had experiences traveling and studying abroad. And I was also a nanny in France. And so I really loved languages and I loved cultures and different people. And so When she was talking to me about it, I was like, yes, this is totally for me. So I decided late in my college time to add that minor. And I think it's kind of apropos that it was this time for me to find a way to unite the world at the same time when the world was being not as united as it had been.
0: Yeah, that is a super powerful story. As you were talking, I'm thinking it was meant to be that at a time where there is such division, you were given this opportunity instead in advocacy. Yeah. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah. What? What a powerful <laughs> story. All right. So I feel like eligibility and the description of this program has changed so much over time. So is it ESL? Is it LEP? Is it ELL? I might be saying it wrong. So please educate us. And then tell us also, how do we know if a student qualifies for the program? Okay. So the
1: acronyms have definitely changed. It started out as being ESL. A lot of people who live abroad currently and are learning English even refer to themselves as ESL students or ESL teachers. ESL stands for English as a Second Language which we're stepping away from because a lot of people, it's not their second language, it's their third or their fourth language. ESOL is kind of the preferred term for English to speakers of other languages. That's the preferred term for the program. But there's also TESOL, which is me, like teaching English to speakers of other languages. And then there's ELs, which is English learners, or there's ELLs, which is English language learners. So I prefer... Calling our students English language learners, ELLs, I refer to myself as the ESL teacher. Mm. And I usually get a lot of questions. People are like, what is that? And then I have to say, you know, it's like ESL. And it, it requires some explanation. But I think that's part of advocating for English language learners is not just saying oh, ESL, but explaining ESL.
0: I I can really appreciate that because when I'm thinking about students that we serve in this program – There are so many of them that know three or four different languages, Mm -hmm. especially some of our students who've come from parts of the world where it's really easy access to other countries that speak other languages. They grew up with it. And so it's amazing to me when I talk with them. So I'm totally appreciative of that explanation. Yeah. So tell us now, how does a student (laughs) find themselves eligible? And I know this is a loaded question, so just do your best. (laughs) Okay. So when...
1: In the United States, when any student comes to enroll in school, whether that be someone who was born here, you know, my own children, when parents enroll their kids, they have to fill out what what the government refers to as a home language survey. In the state of Ohio, we call it the home language usage survey. And so the parents fill it out. And it asks questions like, what was the first language your child spoke? What's the language you speak most frequently in your home? Any, any of those types of questions that help give a linguistic history of the student. And so the parents fill it out. Those forms all come to me. I look through them. A lot of them just say, oh, we only speak English. And then anybody who does have another language listed, I take that form. And then I reach out to the student and schedule a time to assess them to see what their English language proficiency level is. So it's it's a matter of the students kind of being flagged by the form that the government has set up and then in turn they get assessed to see if they qualify for services. So at the beginning of the school year I have 30 days to do all of those assessments. And if a student arrives in the middle of the year, I have two weeks to do that assessment and then notify the parents of placement or not of placement. And
0: I would imagine that there are students who register who have a different language as their first language and their home language, yet when you meet with them, have complete proficiency in English. Mm -hmm. I can think of some of our students here who have had tremendous achievement all their way through their career. So I'm guessing not everybody who writes down language that's not English gets your services. Oh, yeah, no. No,
1: a lot of students test out. So when they get that initial assessment, that initial screener, then they can... Not qualify for services, and here we have so many students that have that strength of another language in their life. I mean, it's amazing. Our population here and our linguistic diversity is huge.
0: When you say that, I have a, a pang of jealousy because. I am not proficient at another language. And by talking with our students, as well as our world language teachers here in the district, I'm always so jealous of that. And I love that you called it a strength because that's Mm -hmm. really what it is. And so really to celebrate that for our students. Since this is a podcast and people aren't seeing me, um, (laughs) I am, I'm going to consider myself veteran, extremely veteran. I might have a couple of wrinkles and a couple of gray hairs. And when I first entered education, I assumed that the ESOL teacher had to be proficient in many languages, that that was the best way to intervene. In my wisdom of having a few years now under my belt, I realized that that is a completely false assumption about the best way to intervene with students who are learning English. Can you talk about this myth of intervention? (laughs) Yes. The question that I get asked
1: most frequently is, oh my gosh, you work with English language learners? How many languages do you speak? Like people are just shocked. Whomever I'm speaking Mm -hmm. with, they're like, wow, I can't believe you speak all those languages. And they don't even know (laughs) what languages my (laughs) students speak. But it's impossible, obviously, for me to speak all the languages in the world and (laughs) work with students in their native language. And sometimes, you know, if I have that language and I can, but usually I have them do the work of connecting it with the language, right? So I... And oftentimes with languages that I don't speak, I say, how do you say, um, you know, if we're talking about clothes, like, how do you say shirt? And I'll gesture to my shirt. Like, how do, you, how do you say shirt in in your language? And then they'll say it in their language. And then I try to say it in their language, which they often laugh because I'm not saying it the right way. But it's a good way to get them to tie it back to their language, even though I don't speak that language. So obviously, it's impossible for me to speak every language. But yeah, again, it's, it's strategies. It's not it's not instruction in their, in their language.
0: Here's another area that has changed a great deal in my career. Again, when I first started to teach, which I remember there being like a separate class for our students who were English language learners, and they were in this separate environment all day long. That's changed really drastically. How should we think about placement for students? And I'm thinking also, in some cases, when a student enrolls here, it's also very clear about what grade level they should be in. But in some cases, there actually has been a pretty significant gap between when their formal education stopped, where they were living before, and now coming here. So how do you figure all of that out? So that can be be
1: a little tricky. So when you're thinking about SLIFE students, SLIFE stands for students with limited and interrupted formal education. Ooh, okay.
0: SLIFE. Say SLIFE. that again. I like that. Yes. S L I F E,
1: students with limited and interrupted formal education. I
0: have never heard this before and I will mm-hmm. be using this term yeah. <laughs> now regularly. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome.
1: So SLIFE students, you have to think about the best interest of the student and you have to consider their age, you mm-hmm. have to consider you know, all those things that you actually consider when you're advancing a student in a grade, mm-hmm. you know, grade acceleration, like the size of the student, the siblings, you know, where, where are other siblings? Or am I going to put this student into a grade with his brother? Right, or- maturity level. Right, mm-hmm. exactly. So you think about all those things. We had a student who enrolled this year, you know, if we had enrolled him in the grade level that his age said he was, then he would have had like a year and a half of formal education before he went out into the world and we didn't think that was fair for him. We wanted to give him an opportunity to acquire English, to gain a formal education, to have the possibility of college and school beyond. Like so, it's a big decision actually and a lot of times some parents know and some parents don't know how how much of a factor it will play in their children's lives, but it's a big responsibility. Like mm-hmm we don't take it lightly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Have you had the opposite when there's a child who comes in and it's a child who you think definitely falls underneath that category of life? Mm -hmm. Do you like the way I've used Uh this new term? (laughs) And it is really difficult to figure out what grade level. Do you ever have the temptation to say, well, I know this child is 16, but I don't know where they are. So we should probably move them down to fifth or sixth grade where the content is easier.
1: Yet there is the temptation to move them down. But I think, again, you have to consider not going too far right. and when they're going to hit maturity versus the other students in the grade level yeah. and and their future. Like, in four years from now, they're going to be like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe they made me a, right. a second grader. Like, right. now the rest of my life I'm stuck being – Right. Yeah, you also have to consider where they're going to be down the road.
0: Right, because I think a 16-year-old who's shaving in fifth grade yeah. might be slightly stigmatizing, might have a yeah. hard time relating to the other <laughs> students around him, right? right? Exactly. Well, I think the best case scenario is that we clone Monica Gibson, since that's not likely, (laughs) when I think about your direct and daily involvement in students, it's impossible for you to be with every student every day, all day long to make sure that they are really able to access the curriculum in every class that they're in. Mm -hmm. So knowing that that's not going to happen, what are some strategies that are universal for teachers?
1: I think the biggest thing is... Creating a safe environment for the yeah. students, an environment where they feel safe to try to talk, an environment where they can tell from you that you value them where they are and that you understand that they have knowledge inside that they just can't get out yet. One of the basic things is that the relationship with the student and that environment that you create with the student. There's actually one of the main theories of English language acquisition theory is the affective filter hypothesis, which is that between the speaker and the language or the content that they're trying to access, there's this filter. It's almost like if you imagine like a brick wall and the brick wall can be higher or lower. The higher the wall is, then the the greater that barrier is between the student and them speaking. And it's that emotional barrier. And so what you try to do is lower that affective filter. So you like take that wall down that allows them to feel like they can access the content and access the language. So that emotional decrease in barrier makes it so that they produce language more quickly. They acquire English faster. I mean, it really is just creating this hotbed of language production.
0: I am responding to this so positively because it's so connected to work that's already taking place in the district. So for example... The primary school and the elementary teachers are all using responsive classroom, which is almost like a classroom management slash character education mm-hmm. program. Mm-hmm. And it's highly invested in the idea of safety within the classroom and ownership. So, how does the student know that they can take emotional risks, which also include academic risks? Mm-hmm. And how do we make sure that their voice are part of that? So it's so aligned to that. And we know without a shadow of a doubt, if students don't have emotional safety, they cannot learn as much as they could. Mm-hmm. We know it's just so pivotal to their success. Recently, I had an opportunity to work with a group of students, staff members, and parents when we were preparing for some equity work at the high school. And a counselor arrived and started to share some information about how to facilitate the conversations that we were going to have, and just gave us a really quick introduction to the importance of just even using a person's name Mm -hmm. and using the person's name correctly. I think that for myself, I'm phonetically challenged. So when I (laughs) have somebody tell me their name and it's in a different language it is really hard for me sometimes to hear those phonemes and say them correctly. Mm -hmm. And because I'm worried about that, I will tend to not say that name. Mm -hmm. And listening to what you're saying, I think I have to persevere through that because now it's like this total light bulb moment for me, Mm -hmm. how hard I need to work at that Mm -hmm. to include safety.
1: Speaking about the name thing, we have a student here whose name is Wenshwa. I didn't say that perfectly. (laughs) She came here a few years ago. And when she first arrived to the country, her aunt said, oh, honey, people are not going to be able to say that. So let's come up with an American name for you. And so now she goes by a different name. Said to me last year, she said, you know, next year, I think I want to get my name back. Like, I think I want my name To be what people call me. I've made a really big effort to always call her that. When I introduce her to other people, I always call her that. I don't think that her peers here do, but she's looking forward to college and the opportunity that she's going to have to introduce herself that way instead of this other name. But I always make an effort when I send, you know, little remind texts. I always say hey, Wanshwana, I wanted to remind you. Da, 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 da. And I think she can tell that I genuinely care about her because I value her name, like just at that level.
0: Such a good story. Yeah. I, I can completely see that. During my time here at Indian Hill Schools, our population of students who are English language learners has changed pretty drastically. The type of EL student is changing. For example, several of our students arrived to us with refugee status. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing that at times, there could be trauma associated with that status Mm -hmm. as well. Can you share your thoughts on this topic and how that population seems to be changing?
1: We definitely have a lot of students who are here.
0: Oftentimes... on a different type of status than we assume.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes, I think we think, oh, okay, you know, their family's here with b and or... Yeah. And we do have a lot of those students. But I think with the level of turmoil in the world, mm-hmm. we're going to be seeing more students who come with a level of trauma. Just this morning, working with my students, I looked around the room and actually was thinking about that. Um, students were working on presentation on their hometowns. And as they're looking for stuff from their hometowns, I'm thinking, oh, just last night on BBC, I was reading about bombing in your country, like literally the city you're from. And I was just reading about how people are fleeing your country. Four or five different students in the room of ten students. I am mm. coming to this realization about. So I, I think the population is different than what we're used to, but I think that's the way it is, and it's going to continue. In two thousand fifteen, the United States looked into the percentage of English language learners, and across the country, English language learners made up ten percent of the population of students in, in public schools. So that was four
0: years ago. Right. And a lot has happened in
1: four years. So. Right.
0: I'm having a total connection to what you're saying and that idea of emotional safety for students. I have a friend who is outside of the school arena who works in a different field completely and was asking me about students who have arrived here from Israel. Mm-hmm. And I was sharing some of the information. Yes, we have students who are here. And he just gave me a helpful hint. And he just said, you know, the first time that they come in, the United States, in schools, the sirens go off on the first Wednesday of the month Mm -hmm. and they're just testing our tornado drills. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to give you a helpful hint. That's a completely different sound in Israel that could be related to bombings. I wanted to make sure that you were preparing students. And it was one of those moments that I was so thankful that that person shared that information with me at all. Mm -hmm. And so embarrassed that Mm -hmm. it had never even crossed my mind. And for all of the students we've had over the years. So I'm just so thankful for any like tid bit of information like that that we get because... Again, for those students, we want to optimize our environment for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, absolutely.
1: And I think sometimes that comes down to doing a little bit of research on your own, mm-hmm. sometimes reaching out to a friend, yeah. um, talking to the student, which at first can be difficult, right? How many sirens do they have to listen to before they finally have enough English to say, this
0: siren yes. sound yes. means something different to yeah. me. Yeah. yeah. Good point. Um, so you are a very talented teacher. You also have certification as a gifted intervention specialist. I'm wondering if you can share some information with us about those English language learners who are also gifted, but it might be difficult for us to recognize that because of the language barrier. So for example, how do we recognize giftedness? Then how do we address giftedness while we're still working on the acquisition of some basic English language skills? Okay, so a lot
1: of English language learners who are gifted, one of the signals and the ways of recognizing that they're gifted is their language acquisition rates. They acquire English incredibly fast. Two students I had last year, for example, came in speaking no English. At the end of the year, they had exited my program, Mm -hmm.
0: which – take students oh my gosh I can't even imagine
1: four to five Mm -hmm. years to exit Mm -hmm. the program some students even longer and so for them to exit in one year to go from no English to English proficiency on the state English proficiency Mm -hmm. exam was phenomenal Mm -hmm. so oftentimes these students are also very good at what we call code switching they're very Mm -hmm. good at going back and forth often those kids are the ones who will be interpreting for their parents Mm -hmm. earlier on and are more successful about. That and they're also very mature in like navigating the cultures and what's really happening linguistically, you know, oftentimes for their parents and the person they're interpreting for. So, those are a couple of things. But I have loved the work that I was able to do to get my gifted training. I think that anybody who's interested in expanding their tool belt should consider ESL or TESOL. They should consider adding that or adding gifted training. I mean, especially in the school district. Those skills and strategies that you use with gifted learners can be applied to everybody. One huge thing is maintaining high cognitive demands for an English mm-hmm. language learner. Mm-hmm. Just because they don't speak English yet does not mean that they don't have so much inside and that they're, they're processing mm-hmm. at, at an incredible rate and mm-hmm. consuming information. And
0: My memory serves me correct. You were able to take classes here at school, mm-hmm. correct? Mm-hmm. Through Dr. Kim Given.
1: Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, so Xavier University has satellite cohort Mm -hmm. programs. And so they were offering classes here at Indian Hill that I was able to attend one night a week for a year and a half. That is um,
0: convenient. Yeah, And Dr. Gibbons, um, one of
1: the professors, she's amazing. Yes, yeah, awesome. she's amazing.
0: Yeah. And just in case anybody doesn't know Kim, she is the gifted intervention specialist at the middle school, but she also runs our mentor-mentee program. I'd be happy to help you make that introduction if you'd like to find out more about those classes. So I have had a chance to work with you on so many different levels through gifted intervention specialists, through children who also, were thinking, have kind of needs those students who are English language learners, but also need some help through unique and specialized instruction through Mm -hmm. an individual education program. Yeah. What I'm about to ask is going to be super tough. Ready? So share with us one experience that you've had with a student that you think really captures the work that you're trying to do. I had a student a
1: few years ago who he was incredibly bright, but there were certain things that were difficult for him. Like he was incredible at math and computation, but then linguistically, he had some barriers. And I think it extended beyond Mm -hmm. just being an English language learner, Mm -hmm. but his parents also said, oh, in Spanish, we, we can't fully understand him in Spanish either. And I think it took a lot of years of advocacy to get him the services that he needed. And it turns out, you know, he needed gifted services and he also needed speech. He also needed me. And I think that my students and our English language learners have everything that they bring with them and their language barrier is a part of that, but they're also just like the rest of our students with so many varied needs. Mm -hmm. I think that that's a good example of, of a student who just has incredible needs, but also needs an advocate.
0: So if there is a teacher who suspects that there is a child who's struggling due to language acquisition, Mm -hmm. what's one step that they can take? What should they do? Yeah. One
1: thing would be to reach out to me. I can definitely help them navigate that and... Ultimately, they should talk to the parents, you Mm -hmm. know, and really understand that child's linguistic history. And again, those are questions that maybe people aren't used to asking, but that I could help navigate. What language did they speak at first? What language do you guys speak more at home? Does he read in this language? Do Mm -hmm. you read to them in this language? When he speaks Arabic, do you have a hard time understanding him? Or all of these different things to just understand, or how fluent is he in Arabic? All these different questions that I think are more natural Mm -hmm. to someone like me, works with linguistic minorities, but also are questions that would help kind of build a picture of the child's linguistic history. I Mm -hmm. think that's
0: a big thing. This might be a very similar type of question. So feel free to tell me that you feel like you've answered it already. (laughs) But what's one single piece of advice that you have for a teacher who has a student who's identified as an English language learner? Again, I think it's just understanding
1: them, letting them understand you and that you care for them. Mm -hmm. Again, like that safe space Mm -hmm. and even for the parents to know that you care about their child and that you want to understand their linguistic background.
0: Isn't that global? Because as a parent myself, my children are not English language learners. They were raised in English. But those messages that I have received from teachers are the ones where they just said, I want to tell you about this really nice thing that your child did. Mm -hmm. Or your child told me this story about your vacation and it was so funny. just gave me this total peace of mind that that teacher was there to care for my child when my child was not with me. Yeah. You have done a magnificent job answering all these questions. We just have one thing left, which is rapid fire questions. (laughs) You can do it. I believe in you. Ready? Yeah. Favorite color? Blue. Family members' names? Pratt, Grant, Levi, Jane, Jonathan. Pizza or sushi? Sushi. Favorite vacation location? Bali. Oh, that's a good one. Last song that you listened to?
1: 500 Miles because it was on the Mindful (laughs) Music (laughs) Moment.
0: Recommendation of a book, a website, a podcast, an article?
1: So I just started reading a book called The Class, which is by Heather Juan Tesoriero. It's about a school district that is very similar to ours and this science teacher who takes students and helps them develop their science projects. And it's like one of the most winning science fair classrooms in America or something. I feel
0: like that is like clickbait, but audio bait for any science teacher ever. Like, listen, (laughs) go read that book. What do you hope your students say about you? I hope they say that I cared about them. What do you hope your colleagues say about you?
1: I hope they say that I am an advocate for their students and that I'm helpful and work hard.
0: What does it mean to be a brave?
1: I think it means stepping outside of yourself and recognizing what other people need and what you can be for other people, trying to understand other perspectives.
0: Last question. How did you feel prior to the start of this podcast? <laughs> and how do you feel now? I was super nervous. I was like, <laughs> me oh <too>. gosh, <laughs> how's this going to go? I'm going to sound
1: like an idiot. No um. Way, but no, it was super fun. This is good. really great. I'm so glad you have me. Good, good, good.
0: As we finish, I just want to say that I have so many really positive memories of Indian Hill Schools that I know I will take with me for a lifetime. And some of those memories are directly impacted by our students who arrived here as English language learners Mm -hmm. and just the joy of learning about them and their cultures Mm -hmm. and watching them flourish. And I also feel that way about you, Monica. I have such fond memories of you and all that you do. I am so excited about the work that you do here. I feel like we are so lucky to have you and our students are even luckier. Mm -hmm. So thanks for all that you do. Thank you. And on a last note, I will say... If we ever have a follow-up episode, in that episode, Monica, we're going to have to talk about your hiring process. Oh, gosh. We'll leave that as like a mystery for everybody, (laughs) but it's a really great story. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks to all for listening. Thanks. Bye.